0: march 2nd the month is going by like that dan nathan how are you 1 p.m on the east coast guy adami back i was in naples florida yesterday uh dan and the great carter braxton worth hooked me up did me a solid this is market call today's episode dan brought to you by FactSet financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow sofi Get Your Money Right, all in one app. Joining us in just a few minutes, obviously the great EY from the aforementioned SoFi, Butters. See, so I just say it, Butters. Butters is here. Butters is here. Butters is here. I am so excited. And oh, by the way, for you playing our home game, the Rangers emerged victorious last night in Philadelphia, beating the Flyers in overtime. I mention that tonight because we are going to the Ranger game Ottawa is in town. They just made a big trade of their own. Got Chikrin for the back line. But of course, tonight, Patrick Kane makes his Ranger debut wearing number 88. I will be there. Dan will be there. EY from SoFi sporting a Ranger jersey will be there. (laughs) Unfortunately, Butters
1: will not be there. How are you, Dan? Um, I'm doing well. I mean, you know, you are fired up today. uh, I think. A, you miss our market cap, our market call, people uh, yesterday, um, but you're also really fired up for these Rangers here. And you know, listen, guy, I woke up this morning at 5 a.m. and you know, I I go to my FactSet app. Um, I'm getting my money right in my FactSet app. I was getting my trading right in there this morning, and I was looking at the S&P was down. I think about 55 bips. The Nasdaq was down maybe Uh 70, 80 bips. Tesla, a name that we've talked about a lot on this pod, was down 6%. I mean, to be down in the pre-market 6%, something had to happen overnight. And and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I was getting a little excited. I never really got back to sleep at 5 a.m. there because I just started scrolling the facts that um, app there, guy. Um, But, you know, listen, man, I really felt like – and the headline really was – that you know overnight that the 10 year was about four percent and, and yeah. that's not something we've seen since october and i thought it was interesting that at least the algos that trade you know kind of in the overnight session there um were keying off that as far as equities versus yields what was your thought about that waking up did you think that this was the start of something well let's just throw up the s&p chart here you know it's it's contending as carter would say with that uptrend that's been in place since october it's right at that kind of 200 day it's probably mm-hmm. breached it a little bit here it's it's at a level thirty nine forty ish. And we're, yes,
0: we're, we are challenging that level and we've been above it and below it a number of times. And I think, so we're going to continue to see there's your battle line. And we've talked about this for a while without question. You know what I think, you know, I think we're going to breach it. I think it's just a foregone conclusion, but listen, right now we're holding on, I think for dear life, obviously the Dow Jones has gotten a bit of a boost Off the Salesforce numbers, which we can or can't talk about, it doesn't matter. I think what I take away from Salesforce is not that it had this great quarter, it's the fact that when you had five activists sort of pushing against you, they were forced to do some drastic things. And that's exactly what we saw. The cost cutting measures for Salesforce obviously helped their margins. And that's why you've seen the bounce in the stock. The question is can you cost cut your way? Uh, to continued profitability that's by the way the same type of quarter we saw at disney that stock traded up to 122 a month or so later was trading back down to 100 we'll see what happens with salesforce but that's why the dow is higher s&p effectively unchanged here i mean we'll see but you know what i think this uptrend line that we're looking at that 200 day moving average that we're looking at you know i think we're going to start to uh breach it to the downside
1: yeah I, I do too and you know carter yesterday was on and he had some this uh, kind of uh, a one-year chart and he was like looking at this uptrend that's been in place since october and then he also had a multi-year chart and just kind of showing where we were um you know in over the last 10 years or so and we are really at a critical long-term support level and you know we've been talking about those kind of um october lows that was like what thirty-five, fifty, or something like that and then those kind of pre-pandemic highs in the SP those 3400 when you look at it you back it out on a log basis and you look at just sort of the uptrend that has been since the oh nine lows and you look at where we are right now it would not be hard to get back there guys so again how much do yields and if we could throw up the 10-year yield chart again we kind of topped out what four three five ish or something we were there um a couple times in early october um early november and you know we're getting back above those kind of late year highs here how important is that kind of Ten-year to you as you think about valuations in the S and P, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about this with Liz too. um, But just thought important. Yeah. Look,
0: I mean, it's not coincidence that the the broader market, as you mentioned. I mean, we bottomed out in the S and P right around the same time uh, the ten-year yields made their high that we've seen for quite some time. The move down was interesting. It actually held the moving average. We didn't. I didn't think it was going to necessarily, but it did. And here we are back above 4%. And the fact that we've sort of raced right through 4%, nearly, you know, not with even a speed bump, is interesting. And again, for the hundredth time, yields are not going higher because the economy is magically doing better, which is what you want to see. Yields are going higher from far more nefarious reason. And I'm surprised, And again, if you had told me a week ago that 10-year yields would be meaningfully above 4% and said, okay, where's the S&P going to be on the back of that? I would have said we'd probably be you know, south of 3,900. We're not. We're holding the moving average. We'll see how long that lasts.
1: Yeah, you know, and the other one that I think is really interesting, um, and if you look at the XLF, the ETF, that tracks, the the financial um, sector, and we know that, you know, again, Berkshire is the largest holding, so it kind of makes it kind of funky here a little bit, but it's breaking that uptrend that it's been in since those October lows. And and you and I have noted this on many occasions that, you know, the XLF and bank stocks in particular um, really outperformed after those kind of Q3 reports that we saw in mid-October and led to the upside. It was one of the first major um, sectors in the S&P to kind of overtake its 200-day moving average. And it really feels like it's got a date with that once it breaks that uptrend. And I just bring that up again because I'm looking at the money center banks. And right now I'm looking at JP Morgan, which is down 1.5%. I'm looking at Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citi, um, all down uh, down about 2% or so. So again, money centers are, are definitely feeling a little bit of this reaction. And there's a whole host of other data. We were talking about some of the kind of subprime delinquencies that we're seeing in autos now, and we've talked about credit card debt. And There's a lot of things that I think we saw out of Q4 earnings, especially if some of these subprime lenders that are leading us to believe, and especially if you put together some of the things that the retailers are saying, the consumer might not be in a great spot right here, Guy.
0: Consumer's not in a great spot. I mean, you'll hear it over and over again. The lazy conversation and the lazy sort of soundbite is, the US, consumers grade, the U.S. consumers' balance sheets. I mean, it's just patently false. I mean, we're seeing, again, consumer debt in the form of credit cards is going to be approaching, if not through a trillion dollars, $5 trillion when you add in mortgages and HELOCs and student loans and all car loans and all the other stuff. I mean, that's not good. Let's take a quick look at J.P. Morgan before we bring Liz in. I mean, this stock had trouble a number of times. You see the levels that we failed at. And now seemingly, you know, do we get back down to the 200-day moving average? I think probably yes, which would make a lot of sense. That probably comes in the form of 125. They're not impervious to what's going on either. And you're seeing more and more, Dan, banks taking credit card loan loss reserves, which is not a particularly encouraging sign, in my opinion, because they obviously see something that, for at least right now, the broader market refuses to acknowledge.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting that you know, um, you know, the the commentary has been cautious by a lot of these um, bank CEOs that we heard on their Q4 earnings, but the stocks have actually traded pretty well. And so again, yep. I think it, that it's that kind of um, situation that we have here with the. Um, 10 year now you know is causing a little bit of trepidation but let's see i mean that like listen that chart doesn't look so bad and and you know that 200 day down there at 125 looks like a long ways away from here so um to me you know the jury's still out let's see how if rates can get towards those october highs again four three four three five and let's see how stocks are acting all right guy it's let's do no, it this is spending, a, a lot big time show with-
0: We're going to be spending a lot of time together, and I think that's nice. I mean, next week, the two of you are going to Arizona. You're going to be at a baseball game. You're going to see a San Diego Padres game, a Pods game. Then you're doing a a little forum, a little powwow together, the two of you. Then we're doing something in the offices of Current next week. It's crazy. It's a lot lot of quality time.
2: A lot of quality time with the three of us, starting with tonight, Mm -hmm. my first Rangers game ever stop it oh wow my second my only only my second nhl game ever
0: i, that, I find that almost impossible I to believe the amount I of have. time you've been here in new york city i will tell you you will feel the electricity in the air tonight this is a march game patrick kane wearing number 88 ranger fans will be going batshit crazy you will be in <laughs> attendance you might actually be wearing a jersey
2: I might, I might, yeah. And my friend said that she has, I almost said messier. Apparently it's messier.
0: No, no, it's not messier. She has a
2: messier jersey. Well,
0: I'll put you know what? I'll
2: put it on. I'm told there's only three periods in this game. Yeah. So that, that must mean there's are. no there's no halftime. No. So okay, so 20- no breaks. I mean,
0: this is gonna be painful for me. No breaks. Three okay. 20-minute periods as opposed to an NBA game, which has four quarters, but uh-huh. we'll get into that later. Again, I know you, we've gotten to know each other so well over the years, and I dig it. This is another one where you came up with this little headline, and you were sort of again, chuckling to yourself. Get Shorty, yeah. of course, a great movie back in the day, but you're bringing it up for a number of different reasons. So let's get right into your note entitled Get Shorty, follow the
2: flows, follow the yeah. flows. You know what? I've actually never seen the movie, um, but Talking. I like... I, <laughs> But I like the title, and it's better than Go Shorty, which I'm sure you have no idea what that means. Anyway, obviously, we've been talking about the short end of the yield curve so much. Everybody's in cash, yada, yada, yada. This chart shows you what's happened with the flows in maturities of less than one year. Look at that little spike in that light blue line. So my point here was that everybody has run into these securities a lot of times when that happens especially in the stock market when things like this happen you call it a crowded trade and you say that okay it's been animal spirits or everybody's following the crowd and that's usually when it's about to break right in this case I think that the crowd probably got this right for the most part. And even if it is a crowded trade, you're still getting paid to wait. And I think that's what investors are finally coming to grips with is that we do have to wait this out a little bit longer. So why not get paid in some cash instruments? I also started this column with a little story about long ago and far away, my first job out of college. I had no idea what was going on, but I traded for basically sweep accounts which meant that I put money into money market funds. I took it out of money market funds. The computer just told me a number. I called somebody. I made the trade, blah, blah, blah. That was in late 2004 I started. By the end of 2005, money market yields had gone from 2% up to 4%. Six-month yields, similar thing. Fed funds rate was on a march upwards to a terminal rate of 5.25 in March 2007. There are some eerie, eerie similarities mm-hmm. between today and then, and we all know how that cycle ended. So, again, I go back to what we talked about, I think, last week or maybe on the, on the pod this Monday of I find it really hard to believe that we would have all of this going on, get to the end of it and say, ah, it was a no landing. It was a soft landing. Everybody was fine. We're care bears, you know, floating in the clouds and nobody lost any money. Everything just carried on. And we started a new economic cycle in a big boom. I just don't think that's going to happen. I'm going to give you one more stat because you guys mentioned the consumer earlier, credit card debt. There was a survey recently published by Bankrate. 36% of millennials and Gen Xers, not Gen Z, Gen Xers have more credit card debt than they do savings. And that number is up from 22% one year ago. That's not a good situation.
0: Yeah. No, it's not. No, Dan, it, I know you have
1: thoughts. No, you know, it's interesting, Liz. And again, you had a great note here. Um, And, you know, all of a sudden there is a great alternative on a six-month basis, a one-year basis, a two-year basis. You know what I mean? Like the idea, if you are uncertain about, um, you know, this sort of environment and what it means for risk assets, um, the idea of getting 5% on a a short-term basis seems like a really great place to park cash. But that last stat that you give us when you talk about millennials that they have more credit card debt, than savings. You kind of have to say to yourself, maybe that's not so meaningful for a large swath of the investment community. But it also, though, at some point, if the market were to go down on the year, the S&P right now, as we talk, is up about three percent, the Nasdaq's up about eight percent or so. I think you'll see money. You know, we hear about money on the sideline. Talk to me a little bit about that over your career. Cash on the sideline, cash on the sideline. All of a sudden, there is a great place on the sideline for your cash, you know, where you don't have to take any risk in a really uncertain environment.
2: Yep. Well, so even though I started in the cash management business, I spent a lot of time analyzing active money managers and talking to financial advisors. And for everybody in professions like that, cash on the sideline was a no-no. It meant that you weren't doing your job. You were uninvested. You were being irresponsible because you weren't in the market. And today that's completely different. If you've got cash on the sideline, you're actually making a higher yield in that than you are in any other security that's really available. And you're safer, right? You're, you're waiting out this kind of sideways grind, and it looks much more responsible. So this is a difficult time, I got to say, for probably active managers who are supposed to be fully invested, because if you have cash on the sideline, you're not fully invested, and probably for financial advisors who are supposed to do something with the money that they're managing, right? But it might be against their bread and butter to leave it in cash to have something sitting there in cash and it is a difficult concept for a lot of investors to wrap their head around that we're just owning cash i would think of it more like a short-term security and you know it's something that i haven't seen in many many decades and it's something that i think most people haven't seen we may not we might not see that again for 40 more years right so this is possibly a once in a lifetime opportunity to get get this kind of yield in such short-term instruments.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And that cash on the sidelines argument, I'll tell you that, you know, stocks are one of those things, the lower they go, the more cash remains on the sidelines. People become scared. That money remains scared and remains on the sidelines. So in order for that cash to be deployed, it's somewhat counterintuitive. I think the market actually needs to start going higher and having people chase, which I don't think is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So part two of Get Shorty, which is also a, always a sequel is I never like dominoes. By the way, yeah. uh, unless you're an 87-year-old man with a shitload of time <laughs> on your hands, you shouldn't be playing dominoes. But people will say, you know what, Elizabeth? It's different this time. The inversion's different this time. You know what I say to that for you, Colonel uh, Potter fans? Uh, horse hockey! Please elaborate, EY.
2: Yeah, and that's how I finished. That's how I finished the entire note, right? I don't think it's that different this time. There's always going to be differences about what puts us into a crisis or what puts us into a recession. The catalyst is usually different, but what actually plays out is not. And what creates a yield curve inversion is not. Monetary policy always has something to do with that and you have to pay attention to it. So the whole thing about, I never like dominoes is because Some of this this pent-up, I don't know, optimism, people wanting to continue to buy stocks, we won't break below the 200-day moving average, this is a new bull market, you name it, is on the idea that we're going to somehow, I'm not even going to use the term, we're going to figure this out and manage to bring inflation down without wreaking havoc on the economy, right? The issue is that requires a Fed pivot at some point. That would probably cause the yield curve to uninvert or steepen look at what happens when the yield curve starts to steepen every single time when it comes out of an inversion it starts to steepen that's usually right before the recession starts Mm -hmm. so you don't actually want the yield curve to steepen you don't want it to uninvert, especially at a time when inflation is not yet taken care of so i do not wish for a fed pivot because i think that in order for them to pivot stuff would have to go terribly wrong right and i don't want to see that happen sooner than it needs to I don't want to see the yield curve uninvert too quickly because that usually means that we're headed for pretty bad things. So it's always a domino effect. Be careful what you wish for. And I think that there's a lot of one dimensional thinking going on out there that, oh, rates are eventually going to come down. The yield curve is going to fix itself. Inflation is going to come down and everything's going to be fine. That's a pretty one dimensional thought process. And you have to think about what the ripple effects are after that.
1: Yeah. And we started this week, Liz, you know, just uh, if you guys are watching this and you don't know, Liz joins Guy and myself on our Monday edition of On the Tape podcast. We do a look ahead at the things that we're most focused on and kind of hit some of the biggest stories that we think um, are going to be affecting the markets, the economy on the week. And we talked about how normally the first Friday of every month gets a jobs report. And we know that the kind of missing piece of this puzzle for the Fed has been unemployment at 53 year lows. I think the last print in January was is three Four percent below the pre-pandemic levels and and taking us all the way back to, you know, like the late 60s or something like that. And so it'll be interesting to see how the market focuses on that. And Danny Moses um, also brought up, he's our Friday um, co-host of On the Tape podcast. Earlier when we were recording that, that, you know, Fed Chair Powell, after all of this Fed speak this week is going to be before the Senate on Tuesday, um, giving his, I guess they used to call it the Humphrey Hawkins sort of speech or so. Um, Before we get to John Butters, here i want to kind of talk about some earnings things that are going on right now here um you know salesforce and and you just mentioned guy that the dow is you know um hanging in there relative to the s&p and the nasdaq it's down a little bit here but because it's a, a price weighted index you know here's a hundred and $86 stock that is making up um, a good percentage. Well, you know, again, the Dow would be down a lot more than it is right now if you didn't have the participation of Salesforce. It gapped up, I think, 15%. It's only up 11.5%. If we look at a one-year chart, also, guys, interesting that, um, I guess, in a different sort of chart, you'll see that it got right back to those August highs Mm -hmm. intraday um, and has failed there a little bit, but it's still up 11.5%. On the flip side of that, and what's interesting about that name is there's like three activist investors. That are kind of really pushing them to cut costs this at a time where they've seen a deceleration of some of their um, important metrics. Um, But we've also seen a lot of the C-level suite that surrounded CEO founder Mark Benioff have left over the last few months. The flip side of that is Snowflake. And this is one guy I'd love to get your quick take on this is that the guidance that they gave and the the, um, sales growth is just not what um, investors were expecting. Stocks down 13, 14% on that one. Here's a stock that still trades 15 times sales, okay? 15 times sales. Talk to me about this push and pull between these two, what I would say are still expensive cloud, big data companies here, um, and the market's reacting very differently today to them. It's interesting. Let's talk Salesforce real quick. I mean, effectively, the quarter
0: was made by reducing costs in a meaningful way, which is why you saw the margins Mm -hmm. improve the way they did. But as I said, when Disney reported, And I'll say here, you can't cost cut your way to basically, you know, this new paradigm. I mean, it only lasts for so long. So, yeah, they made significant strides in cutting some of the fat. And I think at one point there were five activists involved in the name. The real question is, how sustainable is that? Snowflake, on the other hand, is still expensive. And until it becomes probably something close to a hat size in terms of price to revenue, I don't think this is a stock you really want to get close to. I mean, it's going to have moves to the upside like we've seen before. But to your point, despite the fact that this stock is significantly lower than its all-time high, which you know, yeah. doesn't mean all that much, it's still an extraordinarily expensive stock in this environment. So if you're asking me, would you rather – well, at some point, I would rather Snowflake, to be honest with you, because I think the Salesforce move is going to be short-lived. But the question really comes down to, you know, these stocks, despite the fact that they've all gotten obliterated, are are probably still expensive in this environment.
1: Yeah, well, and Liz, you know, I'm just curious how you think about this. Not asking you to opine on on Snowflake, but here's a company that was just a darling. It was a 2020 IPO, um, you know, and and people investors were there, there was no there was no multiple that was too high on a, a multiple to sales. But here, you know, the company just guided I think towards like 40% revenue growth this year, so it's supposed to go to basically from two billion in sales to 2.8, and they're still expected on a gap basis to lose about 800 million in in net income. So it's Really hard, you know. You have decelerating revenue growth, but you still have meaningful gap losses here. And I guess in this rate environment, does that even make sense anymore? Like it just seems like this is this is what's different this time about this cycle, which is why I don't believe. And we're going to look at the Nasdaq for a second here, why the Nasdaq is done going down, especially at a crucial uh, technical level here.
2: Yeah, I I don't think that a lot of these stocks and look so if i went public in 2021 i don't think a lot of these stocks that saw a, that huge euphoria that occurred a couple years ago are going to come out of it until we're not in this type of a rate environment and it's, it continues to be a brick on a lot of their heads until you get out of that non-earning tech bucket it's going to be a brick on your head and you know i don't yeah. care how good the revenue growth is and look some of them are pulling apart there are, there is going to be Uh, a cohort of stocks that'll look better than their peers and they'll pull apart. But there's still sort of a ceiling until rates aren't uh, weighing on it and until a lot of the companies just show gap profitability. And that, unfortunately, that just is what it is. So I agree with you. I don't think some of this is done going down yet. And I think you have to be really careful. Also, I, I think I might have mentioned this on Monday as well. The sectors and the stocks that took you to the peak in the market are rarely the ones that take you out of a trough. So if you're in a lot of stocks that brought us to that market peak in January of 2022, those probably aren't the ones you want to be owning if and when we bottom and get back out. So just be careful about that and be careful about companies that aren't going to be earning for years to come still.
0: Before we bring in butters, I used to go to uh, Gotham Bar and Grill back in the day. And I mentioned that because it was a lovely place to go, but I would order the chicken. And then something magically happened over the last 10 years where it's no longer chicken. It's like Brick chicken. I mean, I don't even know what that frickin' means, but apparently they cook chicken on a brick or something, which is complete horseshit, as you know. But since you mentioned bricks, I thought I would bring that up. It just shows, again, some of the randomness, some of the just nonsense that goes on. I've
2: got – hold on. I've got some randomness, just a real quick one. My dad used to give a brick award every year to one of his basketball players, to whoever threw the worst shot. Yeah. Yeah, he threw the worst shot, and he'd paint the brick blue. Everybody – somebody got a brick every year.
0: Don't you love that? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, as I've said now dozens of times, your old man needs to come on the show. I'll do it with him. It's just be the two of us. We'll talk all kinds of stuff. I mean, it'll be, I will tell you, we will get some serious viewership on the back of that. With that said, uh, you know, Mr. Young, notwithstanding, there's certain pe- people out there. Madonna, Beyonce, Aretha, Bono. They're just known by that. Just that single name. Well, you know who else is? Butters
3: bring them in what up jb what are you doing just tracking the earnings winding it down <laughs> as we uh get ready for a little break here well you are tracking
0: it let's go right to your slide because this speaks to exactly some of the things that we're saying and well, yeah, yeah let's, oh let's find let's.
1: Let's talk about it. First, real real quickly, John. I mean, listen, I think our viewers know at this point, you write every Friday morning, the Earnings Insight blog. It drops on the FACTS site um, blog there and you give us a preview. But every so often you come in, you, you kind of um, just grace us with your presence here. We're gonna do a little post-mortem with most of the S&P 500 earnings out of the way right now. Um, You've done some work here. It's gonna be on your blog tomorrow. And we're just gonna kind of look at some of the trends that you kind of identified and what you think investors should be looking at as we get through the course of Q1 and if some of those trends Will continue to exist. So, talk to us a little bit about the beat rate. You've been tracking, you know, how much estimates have been coming down, or how it had been coming down over the course of 2022, and specifically Q4. Talk to us a little bit about now, with most of the earnings out of the way, kind of what you saw and what we might like to see as we get through Q1 here, and we are right now, obviously, two thirds through Q1.
3: Yeah, well, so outside of the first quarter of 2020 with the pandemic, this was one of the weaker earning seasons we've seen in quite some time in terms of the performance versus estimates. So overall, we saw 68% of companies beat. Now, again, that sounds like a good headline number, but in fact, it's actually below the five-year average, below the 10-year average. And again, one of the weaker numbers we've seen in some time. And in aggregate, the companies only beat the essence by 1%, again, below the five-year average, below the 10-year average. One of the sectors that was particularly weak versus estimates was the communication services sector less than half the companies in that sector beat estimates. And overall, in aggregate, companies in that sector missed estimates by 5%. We had a number of high-profile misses in that sector. So what's interesting is due in part to this weaker performance, the actual earnings decline we're going to see for Q4 of about 5% is actually larger than the expectation we had coming in, coming into the earnings season, which is about a decline of 3.3%. And that's a fairly rare occurrence. Over the last 10 years, We've only had three quarters where actual earnings came in below the expectations coming in the earnings season, but we've now had it happen two quarters in a row. So again, a fairly weak performance versus estimates uh, during this earnings season.
0: Let's take a look at the bar graph, the next chart, because you know this surprises me. Not so much energy on the one side, because I think we all probably realize that. You mentioned communication services on the other side. The fact that real estate actually showed the relative strength that it did I think it would surprise a lot of people. But speak to this, because for a large part, most of it makes sense. Uh, and financials down some 14.5%, I think would surprise some people as well, JB.
3: Yeah, and we had some high-profile misses in the financial sector as well. But overall, you know, the top performers, again, no surprise. Like you said, energy sector at about 57% growth. Um, but what is it different this time around than we've seen in recent quarters is that earnings growth rate has continued to come down as comparisons have gotten more difficult. And oil prices have come off their peak from a few months ago. And in quarters past, energy was able to offset the weakness of some of these other sectors. That wasn't the case this time around. But still the top contributor. You take energy out, that decline of about 5% jumps up to a decline of about 9%. Uh, Industrial sector was second at 38%. Again, a better performance year over year from Boeing and some of the airlines helped to boost growth there. And on the uh, other side of the graph, we had some weakness Communication services, we already touched on that, Uh, weak earnings year-over-year from meta platforms and Alphabet. On the material side, weakness across the board led by metals and mining companies. And then the consumer discretionary sector, again, weakness there from Amazon. Take Amazon out, and that decline of about 22% would flip to growth of 20%. So that's how much of an impact Amazon had for consumer discretionary earnings for Q4. You
2: you brought up, I don't remember who it was that brought up real estate, but- Here's the thing. And and I don't expect anybody to necessarily opine on this. I'll just be the one who does. There have been now, I think, three pretty big headlines on defaults in commercial real estate and just in the last 72 hours. And I'm not going to call that a canary in the coal mine, but I don't think it's a good sign. And something that everybody should know about commercial real estate is that if it's financed privately, it's usually financed with floaters. And there are a lot of floating rate loans that are maturing this year. That is probably not going to be a good sign for anybody trying to refinance a floating rate loan. So I would watch that sector, although I am in the camp where I'm surprised that real estate came in so strongly. I do not expect that to continue, particularly in the commercial space.
1: So, John, let's talk a little bit about what you're tracking for 2023. I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about on Market Call um, for a while is just that, okay, um, you know, 2022, it's going to come in uh, maybe just a little bit below um, $220 um, in S&P earnings, right? And right now, you're starting to see some estimates coming in, right? And we're expecting, I mean, some of the the most bearish strategists on the street, they have have estimates below $200.00. This year, and when you think about where inflation is and where it likely is to settle out, you think about where the dollar kind of just settled out, and the disproportionate amount of S and P earnings that come from U.S. multinationals. I mean, we could have, you know, I mean, right now we're at, I guess, consensus is at like low single digits, right? Decline year over year for twenty twenty three. But if some of these really bearish strategists are right, we could be down more than 10%. Talk to us about what you're seeing so far and also a piece of data that we quote all the time. I think you had it in your earnings insight blog maybe a month or two ago that on average over the last 10 years, strategists have overestimated S&P earnings by close to 8%, right, one year out. So talk to us to what you are expecting for 2023 earnings right now.
3: Right, so if we look at uh, 2023 overall, we're at about 223 dollars per share, give or take. That was about 230 at the start of the year, back on December 31st. And and that stat you mentioned, usually over the last 25 years, analysts have overestimated by about seven percent. So again, not predicting that, but if, if that projection would hold up, the average that would take us down to about the 214 215 range. Um, and so far, we've seen pretty significant revisions, the estimates for the first half of the year, as you can see in this chart. Uh, you know, looking for a de- now declines. Uh, significant declines in earnings for the first half of the year. However, that second half recovery is still holding up. So, um, and overall, we are still looking for about 2% growth for 2023. So we are holding on to very slight growth for 2023 at this point in time. Um, But but one thing that does stand out is the guidance. For first quarter in particular, we've seen about 80 companies give negative guidance. That's near Mm -hmm. a record high um, Mm -hmm. as far as our history goes going back about 15 years. So that's certainly something to keep an eye on um, as we move forward, um, you know, through the rest of the quarter, but you know, more, more guidance, more negative guidance than normal. And we have seen estimates come down for both the first quarter and for 2023,
0: which is exactly why we've said for an, and and your work sums it up and sort of galvanizes some of our thoughts. Estimates are still too high. A couple of things before we 5,000, um, EY mentioned a few minutes ago, she didn't know who brought up real estate. Well, she knew it wasn't her, which only left three other people. And since John hadn't said anything yet, it was down to me and Dan. So I don't know. I mean, clearly memory loss is something for you, number one. Number two, you also mentioned Floaters, which, if you recall, a great movie called Caddyshack, Bill Murray had to don a biohazard suit to take oh, care God. of the aforementioned floater. Number three, JB, your work is outstanding. Uh, your market insight should be must-reading if it's not... For everybody out there, thank you so much. Obviously, it's always great to have you with us. Dan, if you want to sort of say a quick goodbye to Mr. Butters, please, before I sort of wrap this entire thing up.
1: Yeah, JB, thanks so much for being here, Liz. Obviously, thanks for your commentary on John's fine work on earnings insight uh, that's going to drop tomorrow morning. So thanks for your uh, uh, contribution to this program here, John. Thanks a lot. He's saying to himself,
0: why am I – Get screwed? me out of here. – battled with these – These kids. three idiots. <laughs> no, it's really me because <laughs> nobody saw the Caddyshack reference coming, but I was waiting for that one. JB, <laughs> thank you. Uh, enjoy the hockey that you will be watching wherever you do. Unfortunately, I'm sure your team is not nearly as talented as mine. But that's neither here nor there. I want to thank John Butters. I want to thank, obviously, EY from SoFi. I want to thank FactSet Financial Data and Analytics, powered by Tomorrow. They're also our data provider. SoFi, Dan, get your money right all in one app. Dan, myself, EY, and a few others will be at the aforementioned Ranger game tonight. We will not see you tomorrow unless something weird happens. We'll be back on Monday at 1 p.m. Thanks, folks.
1: Thanks, guys.